one thing we know for sure, that things are going to change and things are going to end, including us, that we're, we're going to come to an end. In the Tibetan Buddhist way of looking at things, we dread this, of course, and but that it's actually going back to what you were just saying, it's, it's really an opportunity. If we look at it in a certain way, it's an opportunity to find meaning or find deeper meaning or think about the, the things that matter to us. Hey, everyone. Raghu back with Mind Rolling and Anne Tashi Slater. Uh, happy to see Anne again. We did something a year, a year and change ago. Uh, welcome. Thank you, Raghu. It's such a pleasure to be here again. So uh, maybe a little bit of refreshing because uh, uh, Anne comes from an extraordinarily interesting family, a father from Jersey. <laughs> and and a mother from Tibet, which is highly unusual in every way you could possibly think about that. And uh, so her life has been uh, pretty interesting, especially since you have pursued your family history and your connections. Her great-grandfather was close to the 13th Dalai Lama. Uh, I mean, that's not nothing, folks, out there. Uh, it's pretty amazing to have that kind of connection. And and he also helped Evans Wentz bring this wonderful book, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, to the West. And those of you who know, of course, what Ramdas has done, he did the, the psychedelic experience with uh, Leary and who? Cohen? Was it Sidney Cohen? Or no, it was Metzner. And uh, and that was just taken directly from there. In fact, Ramdas was introduced to it and Leary, I believe, by Aldous Huxley, who had connected with it first. So uh, it's it's a quite a lineage. This book as to where it, what it is and where it comes from is incredible. Uh, and uh, and Annie, and you have had uh, you know some pretty intense experiences, which. Um, we talked about on the last podcast around uh, your getting as sick as you got and actually going through an, an, a near-death experience, basically, which I want to kind of expand on that a little bit. Um, but um, can we just talk about Bardo and what are we talking about in the most... Um, in the plainest terms that we can get to, uh, please. Yes, which is um, sometimes challenging. The plainest terms for something that's very, <laughs> quite, yeah, that can't quite complicated, be right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah. essentially, bardo means between state, and so it's some kind of liminal state. And in Tibetan Buddhism, bardo is death to rebirth. For example, so when um, when someone dies and then the journey that they take to rebirth is a kind of bardo because it's a between state between yeah. death and rebirth. Mm. Also, between birth and death is considered a bardo between sleeping and waking. Uh, also, states of suspension. So, for example, if you have an accident, uh, which is something we talked about last time with my great grandfather when he was uh, w- when he got caught in an avalanche. Yeah, that's a really good example of a kind of bardo. 
And then where something just, it, it, particularly in his case, where it just hit him out of nowhere and he found himself in this, in this state of uh, limbo. And then also, as you mentioned, for example, illness. Another really great example of Bardo that we can all relate to would be the pandemic. And so mm. the pandemic is, mm. is really yeah, a state That's a of great suspension. example. Actually. It's a great example because yeah. uh, our normal reality has been suspended. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's the people who think, well, we, we're way beyond that, Bardo. And then maybe the reality that we're not <laughs> quite. That's a whole other <laughs> Bardo, perhaps. Uh, uh, so, I mean, ultimately, though, is not every moment, moment to moment, is a Bardo change, basically. Because everything that we experience as, quote unquote, reality changes from moment to moment. I mean, it's extraordinary. And we, and we feel that, which is why one of the great things uh, that, oh, uh, to mention to, uh, to everybody who's listening, I talked to Anne before about motivations for, for getting together with her and so on. And, one, and certainly it's her experience and her connection to the Tibetan Book of the Dead. But also it's the, um, just the amazing commitment uh, that people like you, Anne, have had to really uh, forward for people, this amazing, amazing document, which, you know, absolutely can be so helpful. So we talked about all, uh, uh, Pema Chodron had written this book, which is, uh, in fact, I've done a podcast with one, my co-podcast guy who I, we don't do podcasts together anymore, but I just, he and I talk about this stuff all the time. It's kind of like talking about it with you. It's having a friendly conversation, and we did a, around Pema's book, which uh, we're going to tell everybody again, get that book. It's uh, unbelievable. Uh, how we live is how we die. And uh, this, isn't, uh, this is something that you have talked about in different blogs that I've seen you do. By the way, is the memoir happening? I forgot about that. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's in progress and I'll be, uh, I hope that we can, you know, we'll be talking about it. <laughs> Next year. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, so memoir. Great. Yeah. About my, um, background, you know, about growing up Asian American, Tibetan American in the mm. States. And then also about this connection to, as you're saying, you know, to the Tibetan book of the dead, which is not something that, uh, as if if any of you heard our previous uh, talk on uh, when I spoke with you, Raghu, mm. about growing up in in California, you know, in the in the for example in the 1970s and going to Grateful Dead concerts and, and <laughs> <laughs> I never imagined that I would be uh, spending so so much time thinking about and engaging with the Tibetan Book of the Dead, mm. and so it's also it's also about that. What is the, I don't remember if we can repeat stuff too, because I don't remember if we talked about it last time, but what was that initial prompt for you to go back, to, to, to go to Tibet, to go follow your great-grandfather's footsteps? What was that thing that suddenly changed, well, the dead are cool, but maybe? <laughs> A different kind of, of dead, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were on the right track. <laughs> That's right. I was on the track. I just didn't realize that it was all part of that track. Yeah. Uh, God. That's yeah. a really great question. And 
I never would have imagined, and uh, as I had mentioned, it, I my initial plan, I, I love France, and I'm a Francophile, and I, I studied French literature in college, and I was planning to go live in Paris and, and be a writer. And what happened is, is after college, something happened for me where I very unexpectedly felt lost. I just kind of lost my sense of of a forward motion that I had had for such a long time. And, and rather than going to France, I went to India. <laughs> Wait, that's <laughs> so, a big difference. <laughs> yeah, it was just this, this, this huge <laughs> change. And, and it wasn't, I didn't give up my idea of going to France and, and living there and being a writer, but I, I really felt something pulling me towards Darjeeling and my Tibetan mm. family there. And my grandfather had recently died and my grandmother was widowed and she was alone. And I thought, why don't I go there and spend mm. some time with her and see if mm. I can, mm. because I had grown up Tibetan American, but it's a, it was a really, really different time from now. I was, I, there, I can't think of one other Asian American kid in the school that I went to in, in junior high in, in California, in the Bay area. And then in high school, as I think now, I can think of one. <laughs> there was one. Other, there was one other girl who was. There was a girl who was Chinese American, but it just wasn't like it is now. And so there was really. I really grew up in ethnic isolation, and my mother very much wanted us to feel that we fit in, uh, me and my mm. siblings. And so we were not raised with as as Buddhists or with with any knowledge, particularly of, of our Tibetan heritage. So entirely, in an entirely unexpected way for me, this just suddenly came rushing in for me after college where I thought I just felt like there was this, it's this like blank space on a map. That's what it felt like is this area that I just, that, that was a part of me that I didn't understand. And mm. for some reason, I just felt like I really needed to. Yeah. Talk about aligning with the karmic uh, inevitability that i mean to me it just sounds like you got connected with your intuition a little bit and you trusted it and that's got to come through this lineage that you have is so profoundly amazing so yeah unbelievable that is and that is a that's a big idea and i talk about it in the the essay that i wrote for agni about my illness when i got very ill mm. and and how that was a bardo for me and this idea of mindstream which didn't mean anything to me then and, and wouldn't have. But this idea that somehow things do carry down to us uh, in a way that we're not always conscious of. And so what was it that, you know, pushed me forward to 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 explore this? Uh, and what was it? So, and when I was very ill, suddenly this uh, story that my grandmother had told me about my great-grandfather getting caught in an avalanche and how he had survived this bardo that he found himself in came back to me when I was in the hospital because it and I had not thought of it for years and I'll, it was just remarkable to me and again I think that's this idea of family mindstream where things and this loops back to the Tibetan book of the dead where the idea you know when this was composed in the eighth century, the idea was that it would be for the benefit of future generations and that it would be, would come to them when they most needed it. Hmm. And I really felt that when, when I was ill about, uh, that was in 2010 here in Tokyo, 
where I had not thought about this for a long time about my great grandfather and how he had survived this avalanche, um, basically by by not, you know, accepting what by accepting what had happened to him, but not giving up. And mm. so, um, and he had uh, basically acknowledged that how dire his situation was that he had been buried in the snow um, while he was riding down from Tibet one day to to India, and he and his pony and a lot of the men were buried and he survived because he somehow got his hand up through the snow and he was holding his prayer beads and the the men who were searching for the men under the snow saw him. And so this story came back to me and really helped me to, to hold on to, to hope in a time that was very dire for me. And it wasn't clear whether I was going to make it or not. Mm. So this idea of mindstream also really struck me then as I thought, you know, that this, you you do have these stories, they have stories, you have a whole line of things in your family. And, and also, let's say in the collective, you know, not just in one's own immediate family, but in a more collective way that do come down. And so I think that going back to your point, after, after college, in some way, that's what happened for me. So we had not been raised, as I said, in, in any way with any of this, but somehow, <laughs> somehow it, it, it it came to the surface mm. for me mm. and I felt like I needed to, to go to India and, and learn more about my, right. my Tibetan side. Yeah. It's very inspiring though. And I mean, really to have, to be able to objectively look at the reality of what's coming through from, from your great grandfather, particularly, and of course your grandmothers and your great grandmother. But uh, it's inspiring that this, this is all real, everybody. And so, uh, in, by the way, in, uh, in Pema Chodron's book, she, so she's talking about, you know, all of the bardos and the liminal spaces in between things, you know, everything and describing them in detail and, and so on. And then at one point she goes, of course, people may say, well, how do you know? <laughs> and she would say, yes, I don't have any idea uh, directly experientially, although through meditative practice and so on, I have experienced. But I was told this by uh, Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, 16th Karmapa, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. She listed off her teachers. And, and she just said, I trust them. It's just as simple as that. That's why um, in a similar way, but moved over that's um, many of us trusted ramdas that's how we got to india you had the same trust underneath all of the stuff of going i love by the way in your in your you describe your high school days or your right <laughs> uh, in this blog that you wrote what's the name of this blog oh you just it starts out with you describing the buddha and, and how he slipped out of his father's palace and how you wanted to also slip out. Um, but uh, yeah, they called you Miss Perfect and Miss Goody Goody. <laughs> Can you imagine what you'd be called now? I mean, <laughs> uh, oh gosh, yes, yes, really, that's right. <laughs> yeah, more innocent time uh, for yeah. sure. But I'm just thinking about your grandfather, your great-grandfather who was uh, lost in that avalanche and then raised his hand. And what you said about in it's in a moment, in one moment, 
he was totally, he surrendered to the reality of what this is. In that same moment, he summoned up whatever courage to try and stay alive, raising his hand up. That That is not it. An easy thing, right? That's walking on on a the edge of a sword. Uh, in terms of how easy it is to let go into one or the other, and then it it the um, the reality of it is completely altered by virtue of being. I'm gonna I'm gonna courage. I'm gonna do this thing. I'll get through it. This is death. Isn't or including it rather. I thought that that's, uh, that's amazing. No, it's a really, really clear example. And I, I think of it often because it's such a, it's such a great example of, for example, the, the dangers of denial. And so if, mm. if he, you know, so suddenly he's riding along and this beautiful morning, um, coming down after a mission in, in Tibet and, he is suddenly hit by this avalanche and metaphorically, you know, so the same thing, like when we're suddenly hit by things, whatever it may be. And if he had, for example, spent his time when he, and you know, when you're buried in an avalanche, you have very, a very, very short time. Yeah. Right. right. And so yeah, we, gone. right. And, but, but the, the thing I love is the parallel between that. So, you know, we, we think we have forever in life, right? We're yeah. like, oh, there's plenty yeah. of time. I'll do this later, you know, whatever yeah. it may be. And for him, he had a very, very short period of time. Yes, because about the oxygen. And he could have spent his time wishing it hadn't happened, you know, wishing he hadn't gotten caught in the avalanche and he was still riding down on his pony on this beautiful morning. And why did it, why did it happen to him? Why weren't one of the other guys buried? Yeah. All the Attachment things. to everybody in his family <laughs> right. and friends. Yeah. Right. All the, th- and meanwhile, tick, tick, tick. Yeah. Right. So the time would have been passing by and he easily could have died thinking these thoughts. Yeah. And it's such a clear example of where accepting what had happened. This, this is actually like a really bad situation allowed him to have a clear mind and figure out what he was going to do and mm. take action. Yeah. And so because he was able to not cloud up his mind with all these thoughts of, of uh, longing for his normal life and his normal reality, uh, he was able to take action and actually save himself. Mm. And yeah. I think that has huge implications for us in in our daily lives. And so it fortunately is usually not so such a short you know period of time that we have to make these decisions but um where we can like the going back to the pandemic you know we could spend a lot of time wishing that it hadn't happened and i'm sure a lot of us have you know wishing this hadn't happened i wish i had my life the way it was before and so on and so forth but that that is we we can't have it it's over and so if we clear, clear that. Mm. And we think, okay, looking now at what, what is the reality and then not giving up. That's a really powerful lesson. Yeah. When I had COVID, I had a couple of those thoughts because what happened to me is it prevented me from my schedule going off to India that we talked about. And, uh, but it's COVID's pretty powerful. You don't stick with one thing or another very long. Because uh, you realize the absolute uh, 
emptiness of, of doing that. Not the good emptiness. <laughs> <laughs> the other kind. The other kind, yeah. So it's also what happened to your great-grandfather. It's also, uh, we can say it's analogous to obstacles when you are going through the bardos. There are definitive obstacles. One of them is, uh, A, you don't realize you're dead. That's not a good thing. It's a big it's obstacle. obstacle. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, or just the clinging, which is such a part of our day-to-day life. Uh, and, you know, my friend Joseph Goldstein, uh, his his recommendation to a young uh, seeker uh, at one point was when they said, what is it that you would recommend in anything? You've had all of these decades of practice and so on. Stop clinging, right? And that is uh, a tremendous obstacle in that transition. Uh, it, it really helps to have a guru there, by the way, <laughs> I would imagine. I've heard, for instance, the 16th Karmapa, somebody who was there, wasn't a hearsay thing, said, when my students are pa- passing, I will be there to help them across the initial bardo. He said that. So I'm thinking, wow, okay. <laughs> Everybody, latch on there. Um, uh, so, uh, but looking backwards, that would seem to me, and that, I mean, we're talking obviously the major clinging that goes on because you're, of your attachment to your family, to your children, to, to your friends, to objects, pets. I mean, it's it's pretty overwhelming. And uh, but even just looking backwards in that moment, what is the recipe here to have the kind of awareness that it would take to not fall there for too long? It's a great question, and. The first thing I would say is that in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, uh, the first part is very much about encouraging the dead person to face the fact that they have died. Right. And interestingly, the Tibetan Book of the Dead is for the dead and the living, which at first I didn't, I couldn't really get my head around, you know, what does this mean? And how can this book be for the dead and the living or intended well, for the dead and the living? Well, since Sogyal Rinpoche did that book, the Tibetan book of living and dying. That's right. Uh, I guess that was exactly, I don't know if he's appropriate or anything anymore, everybody out there. I mean, that book is phenomenal. That's all I know. Okay. And so that's a, a gift. Every It's all complex. Everything isn't one or the other. That's some of the problem of our lives, making it a little too black and white. But in one case, it seems to be it was pretty black and white. And in the case of this book, it's a a whole other thing. Anyhow, yeah. yeah, So go ahead. I'm sorry. I diverged. And the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it says, so for example, that the dead person, and my grandmother used to say this as well, is that they they hover around. She always used to hover. That's the word she used, right? Yeah. So I love this, like this, like yeah. hovering, <laughs> hovering, around, <laughs> hovering around the altar room after they die, and they see all their relatives and friends looking sad, and and they see their their body there, and they're like, "What the? 
(laughs) What is going on? What's going on here? Like, you know, I'm over here, guys. You know, there's no reason to cry. Everything's okay. And uh, they can't hear you, of course. And so the idea in the Tibetan Book of the Dead is it takes up to four days to realize that, in fact, you've died. And so when... So when my grandmother died, her body was laid out in the altar room in our house, our home in Darjeeling. And the lamas come and they read from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And some of what they're saying is, you're dead. You're dead. It's, it's time to go. It's time to, time to move forward. And um, so the point that you so aptly make about clinging you know stop clinging is that of course we we don't want to let go you know we don't want to let go of of all the people we love and the things we love and the life that we had and it's really scary and the big point here one of the big points to my mind is that's very powerful is that whether or not you want to face it it exists Right. And so you can, whatever it may be. And so it, it may be, okay, death, like actual death. And whether or not one believes that, you know, in, in that the dead person is there and is around to notice that they're dead or not dead or whatever, whatever one may think. And what that consciousness <laughs> right. is, et cetera. Yeah. Well, that, that aside, um, <laughs> if you, if we think of it in terms of our day-to-day lives, it's also really powerful because there are, there are periods. So, for example, one example that always come comes to mind for me is is a marriage. And so, let's say you're in a marriage that is basically over, but you're still in it, and you're not you're not willing to to face the fact that that your marriage is, let's say, dead, or you're you know, or, and that it's, and so you you cling on to it. And what you're clinging on to, you're like, oh no, I I can't I can't leave my partner, or I can't leave this marriage, or um, but what you're clinging on to actually doesn't really exist anyway. You know, you're clinging on to an idea maybe of what you had with this person or, and so you're, and, or it could be a job, the job that has, for example, grown meaningless for you, right? Or is no longer in alignment with what you care about and what matters to you, mm. but you're still in it, <laughs> right? And those, those would be day-to-day examples of where, it's hard, we, you know, it's it's a challenge. It's a challenge to go, oh, actually, you know what? This is the reality of this situation. This is the reality of my marriage. This is the reality of my job. And, uh, but going back to my grandfather in the snow, if you face it, then you can decide, okay, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. And ironically, we, by not doing that, we work against our own happiness because it's not, yeah, it does. It's not, it doesn't make us happy, but we still cling. And so that's the, that's the whole piece about, you know, so um, look facing it, letting go, but not giving up. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be the theme here that we're on (laughs) because the, the reality is that we, we do shy away from challenges. We do shy away from discomfort. That's one of the good things about going to India, as you know, it is horribly uncomfortable. There's no way to be, yeah, in Delhi, you can go to a, you know, five-star hotel. Yeah, okay. But you ain't going to stay there. Right now, people are like dying in the streets from the air in Delhi. And it's really horrible in northern India right now. Um, But yeah, we just 
we shy away from that. I mean, that is one thing, you know, in, in terms of I know what you talk about all the time, what Pema talked about in this book. Uh, absolutely, the way we live the, is the way we die. So if we're shying away, I, I'm speaking to myself here. I, I love a couch and a Netflix film, you know. Uh, as one of my uh, Zen friends calls, uh, yeah, no, there's a lot of great junk pleasure up there on Netflix and so on. Um, but I, I really do see the reality of, of not being able to face challenges and discomfort, basically. Um, or not even put it that way. Be wont to go in a different direction that is comfortable and is maybe part of the habitual patterns that you've been in your life and the neurotic tendencies, it's tough addressing that. I mean, and if that gets addressed, boy, that really does um, give you a vantage uh, when, you, when you are going to leave and when uh, the mystery takes its place there, right? It really does. And it might be if we're facing our own death, or it might be, as, as I was saying, situations that we have in our, in our day-to-day lives. Another one that really strikes me is, is aging or aging parents. And I've been going through this with my own parents. And the, one of the really fascinating things about it is it's not just, it's both of our both of us are denying. <laughs> so they're in yeah, denial. Yeah, right. <laughs> they're in denial. I'm it's in great. denial. <laughs> it's a club, denial club. <laughs> I know. I'm on the in. other end. I'm I'm the parent, right? And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, my children, you know, we're doing that dance. Yeah. 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 And so this this thing with, with parents and, and facing the possible or the definite, I mean, obviously at some point we're going to lose them. And uh, facing that and, and letting go of that in, and really acknowledging it. And I realized that, or, or when people I know have, have died, like the people who I, I love. And I remember an, an uncle of mine who, who died very quickly of pancreatic cancer. And Mm. we were, we just had the most difficult time letting go and meaning Mm. of not saying, Oh, what about this? Or let's try that. Or let's call this specialist or let's, and the doctors were telling us to let go. They said, let him go, let him go to hospice, let him die in a, in a, but not here in the hospital. You know, this is not the best place for him and there's nothing more we can do for him. Yeah. And that was also for me a really striking example. And I, I regret that. I regret that he ended up dying with all these people kind of going, what about this? What about that? You know, and and Mm. they're in the hospital rather than in a peaceful way where he could have just had us with him because everyone came to see him, but there was so much commotion and anxiety and fear and panic around, around accepting. And the doctors knew it well. (laughs) I'll Mm. say that they knew it well. We thought they're like, Oh gosh, what, what you're giving up on him. (laughs) And, and, (laughs) and that wasn't it. And, and, now I understand that. And I, I think it's the same with, with aging parents and uh, my father's already passed away and, and my mother now is, is, has really gotten on and, mm. and really accepting that. But when you mm. accept it, then you can be with it. You can be with it. You can be with them in a much more meaningful way than, than trying to turn away from it. Mm. You know, one interesting thing uh, that I know of uh, through Trungpa Rinpoche 
uh, he was asked, um, what, what do you do when you die? <laughs> you know, and stay in expanded spacious awareness is obviously the, not obviously, but it is one of his first recommendations. But the thing that interested me that he has said is if you find you're in fear as you're passing, do uh, what's called Tonglen, uh, which is part of a, a Tibetan Buddhist practice, giving and receiving. Send out love to everyone who is going through this same thing in the same moment and and take you know and take in whatever negativity and convert it and i thought well i mean if if one could do something like that and remember to do that in the moment or could be reminded by somebody who is there with them helping and then if you take a look at that and you transfer it to now nothing to do with you're not going through the bardo of death right now but you are going through a bardo and that bardo of fear in this case that is a common uh practice that's given by most tibetan teachers in this particular lineage is tonglen and how effective is it uh to so, you know, the way in which we are living is the way in which we are dying. And you mentioned that change. I mean, everything changes from moment to moment, which is really, of course, true. And it's one of the great paradoxes where we're living in this universe of, of this world of impermanence. And yet we want permanence. We want things to last. We want things to last forever. And and in the Tibetan Buddhist way of looking at things, and of, of course, that you know things are going to change. I mean, that's the one thing we actually can hold on to, <laughs> which is we, interesting because right, it's the it, biggest right. fear. Yeah, we've got. <laughs> right. oh, so God. that's one thing we know for sure. Yeah, for sure, is that things are going to change and things are going to end, including us. That we're we're going to come to an end. And in the Tibetan Buddhist way of looking at things, we we dread this, of course, and but that it's actually going back to what you were just saying, it's it's really an opportunity. Mm. If we look at it in a certain way, it's an opportunity to, to find meaning or find deeper meaning or think about the, the things that matter to us. So if we look at it that way, rather than, oh, this is something I, I'm going to try to avoid, even though we can't avoid it, then um, we can look at it as this is the normal course of things. It's a normal course of things that we're going to, lose people we care about and we're going to lose things we care about. And sometimes it really strikes me, you know, how we, we come into the world with nothing. You know, we're just born and there we are, this, this naked little baby and we go out with nothing. And, you know, you look around <laughs> all the things you have. And, and sometimes I get very, you know, cause I have things like objects for, from like, I have the the prayer beads that I got from my grandmother that, Mm. belong to her the actual i have the actual prayer beads that my great-grandfather stuck up through the snow that day that he was holding no. right, are, are here by my desk and i thought well oh. I, I can't take those with me <laughs> like so partly i think oh, i'm going to be like king tut you know and i, I all these things <laughs> are going to be like buried with me <laughs> you know, i'll have the, the the god box that he used when he traveled in tibet and i'll have the prayer oh. beads and all but and i won't have any of it 
Right. We won't have any of it. Right. It's amazing. Hey, you know, what about Ann, the um, when you went through that, when you were very sick and, and died, basically, uh, or at least had, you had some kind of NDE, right? Near-death experience in that? In that yes. Experience? And I had, uh, it was endocarditis. I had a very serious heart infection. Right, right. What can you, looking back, I, uh, what can you, how can you um, refer your experience to what was going on in, in, in terms of the Bardos? Can you connect that up and just your direct experience? And, you know, you, you lost senses, right? You, you went through the loss of senses. Did that happen? Um, it's hard to say in the sense that mm. I was very, I was in the hospital for six weeks. And what happened is I, and in this way, it was very avalanche-like. <laughs> I, I just woke mm. up one morning very, very, very unwell. There was no preamble to it. There was no, it was just like, bang. No. And I Anything woke up. Anything can happen any moment. Happen. Yeah. I was supposed to fly to San Francisco <laughs> the, the next day. And mm. I, I woke up and I uh, I had a fever of 103. I couldn't stop shaking. I had terrible nausea and a terrible headache. And, and I went to the doctor and they told me that I had gastroenteritis and gave, I couldn't eat or drink anything. And they gave me an IV and they mm. sent me home and it got worse and worse. Mm. And I was so, so already from the start, I felt like I was in an altered state. It was the, the, the really, one of the really odd things is that I really did have some of these experiences. I, I felt like, I remember waking up at one point and my husband was there and I was calling to him and it was the oddest thing because I was calling to him and I'm sure I was delirious, right? Because I was so ill and I was calling to him and he didn't hear me. Right. And I remember I thought, oh gosh, I'm dead. I thought I must be, I must be, this is what it's oh, like. Uh, you know, this is what yeah. I've been, I, this is what I've been reading about yeah. all these years. And this is, I'm actually here. I've, I've, I'm, I'm seeing my, my former life and I can't reach it and they can't hear me. And so what happened, and, and this was particularly intensified by the fact that the doctors didn't know what was wrong with me. And so mm. it was, there was very much a feeling of just kind of spinning in, in space. And, and it took uh, about 10 days for them to, to finally figure out that uh, through, I mean, tremendous, wonderful effort on their part that I had uh, endocarditis, which is an infection of your heart lining, and that it was so far advanced that they said that I they were surprised I hadn't had a heart attack, that there were there was so much uh, bacteria in my heart valve. And then it it's it felt very Bardo-esque in this, you know, this whole thing also, because it just got it, there was really a, a journey feeling to it, in spite of the feeling of disorientation, because it just got worse and worse. And so it seemed that I thought, okay, well, they figured it out. So uh, now they'll fix it. But what happened is that, and this can happen with this kind of with endocarditis, is that some of the bacteria uh, from my heart valve traveled through my bloodstream to my brain. And so then I had an, 
a brain abscess. And so then things got really dire. And I, I remember the doctor showing me, showing me and my husband um, on the computer, he showed us uh, uh, what it looked like, this big dark spot you know, on my brain where the abscess was. And I actually left. I left. I left the room. And I thought this is because I couldn't look at it. I thought, you know, and it was the weirdest thing to be looking at a picture of my own brain that was being basically was dying. I mean, the tissue was dying because of this abscess. And so they thought, oh, they maybe would have to do a craniotomy and um, drill a hole in my brain to try to drain this. And there were all sorts of (laughs) discussion. (laughs) And so I just left and left my husband there to talk to him because I just I couldn't. I I felt so unwell and I I couldn't take this in. And and so the whole experience, and I remember, especially at night, because the nights in the hospital, especially if you can't sleep, are really long. And I would be lying there and I could hear the beeping of the monitors from mine and the other patients in the room. And I really had a sense then of, of being of being in, in Bardo, you know, just sort of like drifting along. I was drifting along in the dark and not knowing what was going to happen. And, and again, going back to my great grandfather of, of not wanting to give up because partly, you know, I just thought, Oh, you just think this, this is it. <laughs> it's like mm. I'm actually going to be one of these people who dies in their forties. Mm. And, um, then and and everyone was doing what they could, but I and I was doing what I could. But um, there was very much a feeling of that. And one of the things that really made me feel better, and this goes back to what you and I were talking about, mind stream and connection to our ancestors, is that I what I would do at night like that when I couldn't sleep is I would go in my mind uh, to my grandmother's house. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I would go to her house in Darjeeling where I had spent so much time and I would go through the house and I'd go into the altar room and I would sit there and I would look at the at Guru Rinpoche. And Guru Rinpoche is uh, Padma Sambhava, who is said to be the author of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And um, my grandmother and great-grandfather were very devout Buddhists and, and always prayed to him. And then the Buddha was there on the altar as well. So I was just in my mind or in my heart sit there in the altar room when I was actually in this like near death in this hospital in Tokyo and and it made me it really gave me a lot of encouragement to do that and so it was a way so I really had a sense of that I was that I was traveling through the bardo and one of the the things that I mentioned in the essay I wrote about it that that seemed very relevant is when my husband and I were younger, we used to dive. And so we did a lot of diving around the world. And we went once to Fiji and we did what's called a drift dive. And in drift dive, you uh, hold on to a rope and you hold on to the rope until you get under the current, the strong part of the current, and then you let go and you can drift along next to a coral wall and all. It's very pretty. But we let go too soon. And so we were swept away in this current and it was completely terrifying because I could I could see him but we could we were like lost in space we couldn't see the surface of the water and we couldn't see the bottom and we were just spinning in Mm. the blue together Mm. and that's what it felt like that's what Mm. it felt like is just spinning and spinning in in the blue or spinning in bardo and this idea that somehow 
somehow I just like kind of hold on to hold on to to hope that somehow this was this was going to work out. How about holding on to Guru Rinpoche? <laughs> <laughs> right, what, right, right, and that's, and that's <laughs> ultimately that's why they are there for us. Whatever, if you guru, everybody, you know, everyone's a guru today. So it's hard to say these words, but I do believe very much so. I have it in my life that 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 there is a I just call it a guiding for, force who really cares, and ultimately, as Ramana Maharshi said, God, Guru, and self are one and the same. Uh, we don't know that, so we act in a separate way, and they, uh, the universe acts in a way that uh, allows for us to realize that we can let go, that there is a force, and whatever you want to call it, we are taken care of. We absolutely are taken care of, and I think that, that your case here is obvious, uh, your ability to sit in a hospital room in that kind of shape uh, to allow your mind to go to Guru Rinpoche, to go to your grandmother's puja room and sit in it like that. I mean, that to me is no more or less than complete trust and uh, faith in that guide, period. Yeah, and it would be... I mean, for me, it was, I, as I say, I was not raised Buddhist and, and um, I, I didn't have the religious connection in, in that sense, but I very much, my grandmother by then had already passed away. She died in 2004, but mm. I think of her, I think about her all the time and, and, and she would have been, she was very, very, very tough. Oh, <laughs> and, <yeah. laughs> very very tough that's right yeah you could just like stay out of her way uh, <laughs> and wow. um but i know i could i know what she would have thought if she had known that i was ill and i know that she and she also was um somebody who who never gave up and who was very much um when i was there with her i used to go with her into the altar room in the morning, she did the morning prayers, and then in the evenings, you know, she did her evening prayers. And it wasn't for her, of course. It was more, you know, her her Buddhist uh, faith, right? And and for me, it was very much a connection to her and to our ancestors and to the the lineage in the way that you and I have been talking about it. And that to go back to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which. Uh, as we were saying, my great grandfather helped uh, to to bring to the West in English translation. The Tibetan Book of the Dead, in that sense, you know, you can read it, and it's it's quite difficult to read. It's quite dense, and and there's a there's a lot of stuff in there that that is is hard to may maybe hard to to follow. I certainly found it to be, but the core truth of it, it's not like do you believe or do you not believe. That would be like saying you know do you believe that that you know reality exists or <laughs> that because the, the core truth of it that that I find very moving is that it's basically accept as we, you know I, I said before to accept reality and to hold on to hope and those are things that the human brain we seem to be conditioned to to not to try to to turn away from reality 
and we don't want to do that. And so that is the the great genius of that. And in connecting to, for me, connecting to Guru Rinpoche, for example, seeing, and I can still see it even as you and I are talking now, I see just what that image looks like on her altar. Mm-hmm. In connecting to that is, for me, is connecting to to her, to my great-grandfather, to my great-grandfather's relationship with the Dalai Lama, to his relationship to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and to his own tremendous fortitude that he had in in his life and that that really gave me and and also gives me hope. Mm. Mindstream. Yeah, absolutely. Uh and and the I you know that's super super important. I, I the lineage through our elders and ancestors and, and the connectivity I, I learned more about that in india with our indian family because uh, boy they really do understand a the the idea of selflessness through family you know uh, as well as taking from our ancestors and absorbing it and passing it on that the mind stream I I love what happened to you with going back and, and, you know, seeing, tracing the the footsteps of of your ancestors, basically. I think that's so cool. Um, I wanted to just, you know what, I wanted to read from a blog of yours. Uh, So, and it's about, I think it's about your trip to Darjeeling. I think this is you, but as I read it, you'll let me know. But basically, this is what happened to me. And I mean only on the deepest experiential level of being in this kind of a zone, um, which I was just over the last few weeks. Uh, You know, right, I mean, we were 75 miles as the crow flies to the 26,000 foot peaks. One in particular called Tree Shul, which is Shiva's trident. It's so, I mean, it's amazing the way uh, it actually looks like that. And the way that you get absorbed into uh, this way beyond, and this is not an inanimate um, representation of reality, nature. So the name Darjeeling comes from the Tibetan word Dorje, which means thunderbolt, and Ling, or land. The Dorje is believed to be a bolt of wisdom. So Darjeeling, land of the thunderbolt, I never knew that. That's so great, right? Is a place where illusions can be shattered and enlightenment attained. Traveling to Darjeeling after college, so this is you, right? I harbored no no expectation of enlightenment, had little idea of what it even meant, but I did feel like I was on a quest as I ascended from the vast dry plains north of Calcutta into the mountains. The landscape itself invited meditation on pilgrimage. Giant bamboo and palms edged the road, along with myriad ferns and mosses, birch and maple and oak trees, or orchids and rhododendrons, emerald parakeets and doves, warblers and fairy bluebirds uh, flitted in the lush forest. I mean, I'm just sitting there. I'm in that. Uh, (laughs) It was so great. Monsoon swollen streams flowed past. 
Soon swirling mist obscured the plains and sinuous hills receding into the distance below. I have pictures of that. Silvery waterfalls threading through dense foliage, the next hairpin curve, a glimpse of a mountain hut higher up as a fleeting window opened in the mist. Everything beckoned me onward. As the driver rounded the last bend and we entered Darjeeling, the sky cleared and a ray of light illumined the golden ro uh, roofs of, the of a monastery perched above the road. The jagged snowy peaks of Kanchenjunga materialized, massive and otherworldly, dwarfing the town, spilling along and down a ridge. That's what it's like. <laughs> Yeah, that's what it's like. And you you described also in 1750, Lama Dorje Arinzing, together with a handful of alkalites, left Sikkim on a spiritual quest. They passed through the sweltering Tista Valley, stopped to camp the night by the cool shadow of the Blue Ranjit River, and began their ascent next morning through beautiful virgin... Can you imagine back then what all of that was? forests of rhododendron, magnolia, and oak. And after some hours, they began walking along a ridge that presented a magnificent panorama, panorama of Mount Kanchenjunga and a dozen other snow-covered peaks stretching across the entire northern horizon. As the Lama and his party climbed, they felt strangely uplifted and invigorated. And that's exactly, Anne, what happened to me over the last few weeks. Exactly wow. that. Yeah. 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 And it's a really um, moving intersection, connection, what we call it, between landscape and our inner landscape. And so, Absolutely. You know, just, yeah. Right. Right. Absolutely. And so it just gives rise to that. And it was a perfect place for me to read uh, uh, Pema's uh, book, too, because that kind of way in which you're connecting the guru is. This landscape is it is not inanimate, and uh, I mean it's extraordinary, and so it really lends itself to allowing some of what we think we know, some of those patterns that we use to protect ourselves from uh, discomfort or challenges or whatever it was we discussed before. So, yeah. That's a really great point. It's a really great point. And it's another aspect of, of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, of the teachings, the Bardo teachings and other teachings that, according to legend, that Guru Rinpoche hid in Tibet in the 8th century and to be discovered later. And the idea is that, so he hid them in caves and he hid them in trees and lakes and in the mm. mind and, and in dreams. Termas, right, they call it. Termas, exactly. And that they are there to be discovered if you have the right perspective. And that speaks to what you're saying now. Is so these yeah, things yeah. that you 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 think you don't know, but you actually do know, or that somewhere in your in your let's say in the geography of your mind, uh, it's there. It's there, and it's a matter of either of bringing it forth or being mm. in that kind of environment, literally or metaphorically, where you will uncover these things. Yeah, perspective is so important. I mean that we see things from from our stories, which are projections of our thoughts and so on. And the minute that we allow for some space to happen through meditation practice or other practices, 
and we, we can have a vantage point that ha- doesn't have all that judging and separation and polarization going. Uh, it's amazing how then I think we can face the daily bardo a lot better as well as the one, the bardo of death. Uh, so, yeah. Great to have that mind stream and great to have uh, you here to share that mind stream with us. It's I really been appreciate such it. such a pleasure. Such a pleasure, Raghu. Thank you very much. I, uh, I love talking about these things with you and uh, it's it's really been very, it's been fascinating and inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we're going to share all this and uh, we'll get people to share some of your blogs and, and other things and look forward to the memoir that's coming out, which we'll speak to when it does. And, uh, yes. And I actually, and, uh, another book that I'm working on now is about yeah. very much about this. It's about Bardo. It's about the art of living in an impermanent world. Mm. And so how, oh. how, yeah, it's related to, um, Bardo in the larger sense in, in which we've been talking about it. Right. Right. And, and how that, do we live? And that is coming? Uh, that I'm working on now. That's the my yeah, my latest that's your project. Uh, my new project. Yes. Uh-huh. yes. Well that's so a it's... worthy one. That's fabulous, <laughs> Anne. Right. Yeah. And I'm yeah. really, really happy to have you here. And everybody, uh, you'll go to the show notes, you get all the links and so on, so you can hook up with Anne's work. And uh, again, so happy to have you here. This is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and take advantage of all the wonderful, some of them, like Joseph Goldstein, we've talked about here, uh, wonderful podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>